I'm trying to think of which portion of that was sometimes omitted by others. <laughs> I suppose maybe it's the real property part, just as a guess. Am I right? Is that the guess right? Okay. Now I'm even more astounded that that would be. Well, hearken back to a time fairly long ago to a time that was a gender-fied era of televised pageants of beauty. And you might remember how she responds in this pageant of beauty. You know how she responds. Her answer was then and almost is now a cliche. You've heard the question asked many times, maybe at the beginning of time by Burt Parks. If you could have just one wish, what would it be? And what does she say? World peace. Exactly. <laughs> you were there. <laughs> or maybe there is only one answer. Well, let me start out kind of on a downbeat here. Really, what kind of world would that be? Could it be? Would it be a world where there were no disagreements, no arguments, no conflicts, no pain, no suffering, no war, no deaths, at least no violent ones? Would it be a world where there was no futile striving, no unrequited love, no frustrated hopes, no unfulfilled dreams, no tragic lives? Well, this kind of analysis might be called hypothetical nullification. It suggests, however, something about the way we are as humans, and that that something would have to be left out of such a world. But it suggests, too, that that something might be on balance, something we might like to hold on to. Truly, consider what it would mean to live in a world where there were no disagreements, no competing interests, no tension-filled arrangements of people in which it was impossible for all their aspirations to come true. This kind of analysis might be called stretching a point, and maybe Miss America was the first one to show us that. After all, she's just one, and there she is, as the song goes, speaking to the world from center stage, basking in the bright lights, while, if you look closely, up there on the stage, but behind her now, not in the bright lights, are the ones whom she's just beat. And they're standing there back in the back as a strong argument that the dream of world peace is, at the very best, not likely to happen. But let's not get our own analysis too far ahead of the cart. Let's not run away completely with ourselves. Surely, there is a middle ground where we can still be ourselves, where we can still be individuals with self-determination and free will, where there's still interperson, interpersonal tension and disagreements without it all leading to war and wholesale slaughter. Surely, I say, and this is where I can exhale, there is such a happy middle ground and I think that we are much closer 
to being there than we give ourselves credit for. And I think that we can fairly choose to celebrate this state of affairs without fearing that our stance, our celebration, might be seen as a head-in-the-sand attitude. And the reason I think we ought to celebrate our successes and growth and accomplishments is because I think that they exist precisely because we are what we are. Individuals with strong senses of self-determination with minds and hearts of our own. This is perhaps a radical perspective on today's world, but I think the facts are there. Someone once told me that radical in this sense is related etymologically to the word radish on the theory that they have a common root. Oh, that's I laugh too. Uh, the, the second foot falls and says this, that a radical is one who goes to the root of something, who, who starts analysis at the most basic fact and builds up from there. So maybe it's true. In any event, to me, our individuality can be seen as the foundation for this radical perspective. Understanding the wonder of our daily lives starts with understanding the er character of our own selves. We are introspective. We do hold conversations with ourselves, internal dialogues. And indeed, some cognitive scientists have suggested that it's not possible for infants to do that because they've not yet learned a language that will carry along the conversation. But we're not infants, and we know that there are standards inside us and that we debate them inside us each day. And here is the point. Here is the root. Here is the radish. The quest for an authentic spiritual life starts with the mystery of our individuality. Each of us lives out this principle every day, whether we see it or not. Each of us resists intuitively being categorized and lumped and treated as simply an indistinguishable, homogenous part of a much larger whole, the kind of large, lumpish category often put together by the bureaucratic logic of modern states or HMOs or credit bureaus or mortgage companies or political parties or whatever other matrix-making organization you can think of. And we resist the lumping that's imposed on us because it overrides our own sense of individuality, which, this, which is the source of our own sense of meaning. In this way, with our language, we are meaning-making organizations, each one of us. Good for us. Let's truly celebrate that, that resistance, that underlying sense of meaning that says each of us is beautiful, a delight that says you do not have to try harder, be better, be perfect, or be anything you are not. This beauty is in your individuality. It is in you, just as you are in this moment. It's what's important not your degree of imperfection. Now, this has been put more lightheartedly, to be sure. Mark Twain mentioned offhandedly, I suppose, 
It's always better that way. Humankind was made at the end of the week's work when God was tired. Despite Twain's humor, the point's a serious one. And to make sure no one misunderstood, E.E. E. Cummings put it this way. To be only yourself in a world which is trying its best day and night to turn you into everybody else means to fight the hardest battle any human can fight and never stop fighting. The Jewish Midrash, their years and centuries of deliberations on the Hebrew Scriptures and other writings, the Jewish Midrash makes the same point yet another way. All other things other than humans are complete at the very moment they are made. They cannot grow. But humanity is not completed when it's created, but instead it must grow into what it wills itself to become. So can we imagine a world in which we could not enjoy the beauty of experiencing our own personal growth? If we think about our capacities when we were infants, we might all be willing to think, wow, we've really come a long way. And to be sure, you have to step back a ways from yourself to see that. So maybe that's what I'm doing for you today. It helps me to step back, and I'd like to... I know you know that, but it's what I'm saying. If we cannot enjoy the beauty of experiencing our own personal growth, let's nonetheless truly celebrate the experience of pausing and reflecting and rejoicing over it once we find it. Consider this. We feel most alive when we're in the midst of a project, when we are on a mission. Let's honor the beauty of a world that invites us to do that. Let's honor the transformative power of our own personal striving. Let's honor the creative energy that drives the changes in our life. And for sure, let's remember to celebrate the creation that lets all this happen. Now, I know you think there must be more. And I agree, we must feel free to indulge ourselves here a bit, to take this pleasure without fearing that doing so threatens our growth. I think we do not debase or cheapen the beauty of our self-determination by recognizing their effects in this world. When we are people who are present, when we care, when we listen to others and take them seriously, we are free to celebrate our involvement in this world. This celebration is not a predigested or programmed effect. It's the real thing. It's not a fictional feeling like the excitement hyped in political campaigns or advertising hoopla or reality shows. It is not a fictional feeling that anyone can claim to experience but no one can quite possess. It is not a curtaining off of what is unacceptable in reality. In other words, it is not kitsch. So let me digress a little on that. 
You might have seen Gene Wilder in Mel Brooks's Young Frankenstein when Wilder, as the young mad scientist, descends into his grandfather's laboratory to apprehend his creation coming to life. And Wilder, as young Frankenstein, says, Alive! It's alive, I say! It's alive! And so I think I can say that here, too, about this celebration of humanity. Real! It's real, I say. Our celebration rises above the tautology that is the, at the heart of kitsch. The claim that all we're doing here is cheering together, long live us, long live life. Our celebration is fact-based. It does not depend on sentimental tears wept for all the children who might ever run through the grass, for all the lonely people who might ever find their true love, for all the workers who might ever find some rest. Our celebration of humanity depends on the facts of our self-determination, our being here and caring and listening and wondering and then responding back in a creative interchange with those near to us. There is some real theological work here. A Unitarian theologian who began as a Presbyterian minister, but in the middle of his career, in about the middle of last century, uh, left Presbyterianism to become a Unitarian minister. Uh, his name was Henry Wyman. Uh, it's W-I-E-M-A-N. I suppose in German it'd be Wieman. But he insists that we pronounce it Wyman. So that's the name. Um, and Henry Wyman said this. He was interested in determining what it is that saves us. Whatever it is that saves us, whether for a heaven or whether simply for our lives here on earth, um, needs to be identified. We need to find out, as he would have put it, what has salvific effect. And then he was prepared to call that God. Just as a process, he would find something on the earth. And it, interestingly, was something that we can do ourselves. It is the very kind of creative interchange that he would say we can make happen when we make a connection by communicating with another person, when the meaning of what is said becomes part of our lives, when our ability to understand and appreciate the world is deepened and enhanced. And when everybody involved in the communication then shares in an increased sense of community. This analysis by Wyman is called naturalistic theism, and it's very, very close to what others would call humanism. When I was in divinity school, it appealed to me because I did not have any supernatural beliefs and yet I thought there was more to life to be gained from inside each of us than I at the time felt I had been gaining for myself. So here comes Wyman telling me you really should value the opportunity to be here and to talk to these people and to listen to what they have to say and really become engaged in what's going on. 
We are not perfect, to be sure, and there is much growth ahead for us. We know that. I am 70, and so I am now well into the process of convincing myself that my life is not anywhere near being over. And what encourages me is that the opportunity for growth continues unabated. As Martin Buber made clear, the double nature of humankind as the being that is both brought forth from below and sent from above results in the duality of humanity's basic characteristics. The point, I think, is a good one whether or not, as Buber did, you believe that we're made in God's image. But we have evolved, that's clear, and we are mortal, and yet we are self-aware and we can aspire to personal growth and even like Miss America, we can cast it out into the world and hope it sticks and becomes world peace. But our individuality is our essence. It's woven into Unitarian principles. It colors how we see the world, whether we know it or not. And it colors all the individualities of all the people we encounter. Let me finish with two pieces from Rainier Maria Rilke, who, like Hemingway, was dressed as a child, as a as a, a daughter, for the first three or four or five years of his life. Rilke was a late 19th century to mid 20th century German or Swiss poet. I have two poems by him. I'm trying to decide which one I thought I should read first. Um, let me read the one he called Uber Kunst, or On Art. This as a way of explaining how it is that you can live and be engaged in your self-conscious introspection but also be engaged in these creative interchanges with others, and also at the same time to see it as holy, as worth pursuing in its own right. This is uh, Rilke on art. This is how to do it. It's a recipe from him. Not any self-control or self-limitation for the sake of specific ends but rather a carefree letting go of oneself. Not caution, but rather a wise blindness. Not working to acquire silent, slowly increasing possessions, but rather a continuous squandering of all perishable values. And that's it. I suppose you could do a sermon on which values are perishable and which, which ones are essential. Um... When I was in Taos, I went out to a place where they advertised earthships. It was west of the Rio Grande Gorge, which itself is west of Taos. Um, and earthships, if you've heard of them, uh, at least in the Taosano version, but they profess to be built all over the world out of discarded materials like tires and wine bottles. 
They are capable of existing off the grid, and so they have a very small environmental footprint. And it was begun as a movement by a fellow named Michael Reynolds, whom I don't know. But what I do know is that I bought a postcard at the Earthship's shop of him telling us almost exactly what Rilke just said in his poem, a carefree letting go of oneself. So this is the card. It looks a little bit like this is him, I suppose. I don't know that you can see that. He looks a little like he just walked out of the Mad Max set or uh, Blade Runner or something. Um, it's clear he's standing in the midst of a sandstorm, and he's got a red bandana over his nose and a shovel in his hand and a hat over his head. Maybe he looks like Woody Guthrie. Um, but on it, it says, I take it this to be his philosophy, it says, let go and keep going. So that's Michael Reynolds in, on Earth Ships. Let me now get to Rilke's second poem. Here he talks about an angelic, ghost-like apparition rising up to explain to its God that my prayer is growing ripe. To say, if you are the dreamer, I am the dream. To make its own claim that its life be allowed to count to have purpose, to grow in its uniqueness, and to be holy. So this is Rilke. I am, O oh anxious one, don't you hear my voice surging forth with all my earthly feelings? They yearn so high that they have sprouted wings and whitely fly in circles around your face. My soul, dressed in silence, rises up and stands alone before you. Can't you see? Don't you know that my prayer is growing ripe upon your vision as upon a tree? If you are the dreamer, I am what you dream. So I take it that our lives are the stuff of our own dreams for the future. Our future, our wills will make that future happen. And our communications, in the meantime, are godlike. They are holy. If we are willing to risk that nothing worth doing is completed in our lifetime, we can celebrate the hope that allows us day by day to be ourselves and for the dream that we learned from Burt Parks so long ago, which is not foolish or fatuous or facile, but at a personal level, is very real. It's in us to create Wyman's God on earth. However, you look at God. Amen. <laughs>